This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello and welcome to The Interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the Editor-in-Chief of Mediaite. This week, I spoke with the four authors of Playbook, Politico's flagship newsletter covering politics and power in Washington, D.C. Those four reporters are Tara Palmieri, Eugene Daniels, Rachel Bade, and Ryan Lizza. They took over Playbook one day before Joe Biden was sworn in as president in January. We discussed the current state of the Republican Party as it reckons with the purge of Liz Cheney from its leadership. We also spoke about how much power Trump still has over the GOP, what it's like reporting on DC right now, and what they make of the scrutiny that comes with authoring the most influential newsletter in politics. Joining me now are the authors of Playbook, Tara Palmieri, Eugene Daniels, Rachel Bade, and Ryan Lizza. Thanks to you all for coming on the show. How is everyone doing? Good. Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. great. Of course. I'm, I'm very happy to have you guys here to explain this week uh, in Washington, DC. Uh, the biggest story, uh, I think, is the campaign to remove Liz Cheney from her leadership post. Uh, there is now a vote set for Wednesday, I believe. Uh, Rachel, I'll, I'll come to you first. Uh, sure. you explain what's going on here. Look, I think, um, and we put this a little bit in Politico today, um, when you look at this story, obviously, the first thing people think it's about is like Liz Cheney versus Trump, which wing of the party is going to be winning out. Clearly, the Trump wing uh, is the answer, but it's kind of bigger than that. I mean, this is uh, fundamentally about um, one man's ambition, and it's about Kevin McCarthy's ambition to be speaker. Um, the California Republican basically has decided that in order to get the votes to be speaker after Republicans flip the House, which they're probably going to do um, next election cycle, he needs to have Trump in his corner. And so, um, Basically, he's trying to make nice with Trump, who was angry at him after January 6th for calling him out. McCarthy has uh, since then sort of walked back those criticisms. Um, and he sees basically sees ousting Cheney as a way to sort of get back into those good graces and potentially be speaker someday. So uh, do you think that most members of Congress actually agree with Liz Cheney's position on the election, but will still vote to oust her because they see it as the politically advantageous move? Yeah, I mean, right now she's a pariah, right? So mm -hmm. um, nobody sort of wants to be out there defending her. I think one of the only people who is, is Mitt Romney, um, who's obviously been uh, at the um, other end of uh, Trump's, you know, fists uh, from time to time. Um, but like, as we put in playbook today, there is a quiet constituency behind the scenes that knows this is, or, or believes this is wrong. Um, and they um, have their own criticism of McCarthy and say, somebody we were talking to yesterday said he doesn't have a backbone. Where's his moral compass? Uh, one house Republican who has actually been pretty close with the leadership over the years told me that he doesn't think he would support McCarthy for speaker right now uh, because of the lack of leadership he has shown both on 
Cheney um, on Trump and January 6th, but also like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, uh, who they have their own issues, are running around the country and not getting any sort of rebuke from Republican leadership as they go after Cheney for um, refusing to lie. Yeah, there's so a, I did. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was gonna say there's another like part of it as well is that like every time Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy are, you know, taking questions from the press and they have different messaging as well. It's and, and Kevin McCarthy doesn't like smack her down. It infuriates Trump, mm. you know, like this like vaudeville act that they have. The fact that like Kevin McCarthy isn't then, you know, attacking Cheney for what she's saying about Trump. It's just another reminder that it, it, it just it, it brings up the fact that he did condemn Trump in the beginning and then he came, went back on it. And, you know, he, he can't, I think he feels like he can't get back into Trump's good graces as long as Cheney's around and, you know, and is a reminder that he's not really, he's flip-flopped. Yeah. Now, Tara, I, I was also, I was reading a story a few days ago um, in the, I think it was the National Review that was expressing some baffled consternation over the fact that Republicans are dumping Liz Cheney, who just won an election, a re-election in a landslide, to express this sort of fealty to Trump, who lost a presidential election fairly badly. Is this whole episode proof that Donald Trump still wields complete control over the Republican Party? Or are there other factors at play here? Well, I mean, she did win in a landslide, but like Wyoming is a very Republican state. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that that would happen again. I mean, she's got a primary coming up in August. I, would, I was in Cheyenne and basically I heard a lot of people just complaining about the fact that she voted to impeach Trump because I think ultimately, like, I think she won Wyoming by 70 points and he won by 84. He's just way more popular or 80. I don't know if it was 80 or 84, but he's just way more popular in uh, Wyoming. It's almost like, like I met people who were at the rally, the January 6th insurrection in mm -hmm. Wyoming. Um, these are like, this is like Trump country and her defiance of Trump is probably as long if it's not a crowded field, if it's a crowded field in the primary in August, she'll be fine. I guess she might win by like 20%, but it looks like Trump is really actively getting involved in terms of recruiting candidates. And like, and once that happens, he'll, his spokesperson said he's going to Wyoming and he'll be campaigning against Cheney. So even though she won in a landslide, I think there's also the fact that she has really great name recognition too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Cheney, it's a, it's a brand. And they have good feelings about her father. But now, I mean, based on my experience there for a few days, it just seemed like the tide has turned and, and really shifted against her. Um, and it hasn't changed. And I think it hasn't changed because she's now, you know, um, she's waving the anti-Trump flag of the Republican Party. And so many of them are still, the voters are still so loyal to Trump. But, you know, I, I could be wrong. And it, I, I do find it interesting that it, it does seem to, uh, at least Playbook this morning was very much focused on Kevin McCarthy's quest uh, to become uh, speaker. And it, 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 there does seem to be, I mean, you guys reported that there's a, a bit of a growing, um, there are growing complaints about the way he's handled this. And Rachel, you, you mentioned that before. Um, you guys wrote that some House Republicans are privately griping about how the California Republican has fed, uh, fed a colleague to the MAGA wolves in his quest to become speaker. Um, is is that something that you guys foresee as becoming an issue for Kevin McCarthy or will the sort of specter of Trump keep most House Republicans in line? Look, nothing unites the Republican conference more than taking the House. And so you have to think about, you know, Kevin McCarthy is going to lead these members back to the majority. That's almost a certainty. And that is going to give him a boost. Um, but again, like long term, people are privately 
definitely have have issues. Um, I mean, McCarthy has this sort of reputation for telling everybody sort of what they want to hear, for going where the political winds blow. And sometimes a lot of people like that. I do think most of the conference obviously is behind him on getting rid of Cheney. But then some people do want him to take a stand. Um, and interestingly enough, these are people who are saying this privately. Going on the record to actually vote against Kevin McCarthy as speaker is going to be much tougher. Um, but I mean, look, there's, like I said, private griping going on. It's just too early to say, um, and a lot can happen between now and then. And there was also uh, one uh, Congress uh, member of Congress was was sort of complaining about the way uh, someone like Liz Cheney has been treated by Kevin McCarthy uh, versus how uh, more fringe members of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, have been treated. It, it, do you see in the next couple of years any sort of effort by the Republican conference to rein in those fringier elements, or are they sort of basically going to turn a blind eye to them? I think they need them. They bring out the base, right? Mm. Like the QAnon types, like they really haven't divorced themselves from QAnon and the conspiracy theory. They still say the election was stolen. So how can they really get rid of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates? Like where, what moral ground do they stand on? I think like we've clearly seen from McCarthy that he um, he's very light touch when it comes to these members. I mean, often you will hear Republicans griping about how John Boehner would never put up with this crap. Um, and they want him to take a stronger stand against some of these fringe elements. But again, these are members, as Tara says, these are members that are close with Trump. If he goes after Matt Gates uh, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, he's going to get an earful from Trump and he wants Trump to be in his corner for, for the speakership. So, um, I mean, clearly he refused to ask Gates to step down from any committees when, um, you know, it was reported that he was under investigation for sex trafficking. Um, and he ultimately decided to stick with Marjorie Taylor Greene when Democrats were trying to get her to uh, uh, kick her off committees. And ultimately Democrats did, but he was against that. So, I mean, look, it looks like McCarthy has made his bed when it comes to this sort of uh, wing of the party and he's going to be with them and Cheney, the Cheney's types are going to be the ones he punishes. Now, Elise Stefanik is uh, the New York Congresswoman who has been endorsed by Trump and Kevin McCarthy to replace Cheney. And the criticism of her is that she's a bit of an opportunist. Uh, she's someone who used to criticize Trump. She's now turned to embrace him uh, to make this sort of power play in the party. Is that how she's seen by her Republican colleagues in the House? Um, I think Stefanik it has a lot of support um, across the conference. Um, there were some conservatives who were privately squawking that she's not conservative enough. Um, you look at her score um, from like the Heritage Foundation that grades Republicans uh, based on their roll calls, how conservative they are, how conservative they're not. Um, and she doesn't exactly get an A. I think she actually gets an F because she's pretty moderate. Um, mm -hmm. But actually, I think that a lot of even some Trump supporters in the House like Jim Jordan like that about her and that she's a moderate who found a way to not only be comfortable with Trump, but actually vocally support him through both of these impeachments. Um, she really became a star during the first impeachment, had a very much a speaking role. She was on TV often defending Trump against the Democrats. Um, and if anything, I think there's some appreciation for the fact that she comes from one of these districts that's so sometimes more competitive and still found a way to be with Trump. Um, and so I think she's got support from moderates, some, some support from conservatives like Jim Jordan, which I do think goes a long way. And so any private griping you're gonna, you know, you hear about um, regarding her voting record, 
frankly, it just doesn't matter in this Republican party. Uh, all that matters right now is that you're with Trump. And so I think she will be just fine um, in terms of this election this week. So also, it's like it, tail is old as yep. time, like having issues with Trump and then coming back to Trump. I mean, his closest advisors have flagged him off, right? Yeah. Like this is just, and he doesn't really care about your voting record. He, you know, <laughs> he probably doesn't even know it. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like it's it's one statement is all that's required in, in, in sort of praising him and you're back in his good graces. Right. Yeah. I mean, even I mean, look at look at Lindsey Graham. Right. During the 2016 primary, um, then just candidate Trump was on stage giving Lindsey Graham's personal cell phone out. And now, <laughs> you know, I'm like now they're friends. So it's like it doesn't like Tara and Rachel are both saying, like, it doesn't really matter with Trump as long as at some point you stay nice, you're nice to him and you stay nice, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're good to go. He doesn't care about her, um, at least the Phoenix voting record. He doesn't care that she voted against his one thing that he really got done, which was the tax cuts. She, he doesn't care um, that she had, you know, she talked about the Access Hollywood tape and um, before she was even in Congress, he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He cares that she is supportive of him now. And that's what this boils down to because when you look at, the actual voting record, Liz Cheney voted with Donald Trump's position 92.9% of the time. So basically 93% of the time while he was in office. And Elise Stefanik was 77.7. So it's clearly not about how supportive you were of him when he was in office, just how supportive are you right now of the lie that he's telling about the election. And I feel like the election and impeachment have made Trump a really cheap date now. Because, I mean, Previously, he, you know, he had, there were certain issues that maybe he, you could get him to care about or some of his advisors could put in his ear and that, oh, so and so put it against the, the tax cut. But now everything is a bright red line for Trump. He wants to destroy the people who voted for, for, uh, uh, to impeach him or to indict him. Right. And that's basically his, his total obsession at the moment. And, you know, so it's pretty, it's pretty simple to get back into his, it's more simple now to get back into his good graces than, than, than ever because he's just single-mindedly obsessed about this thing. Right. And it does, it does seem like something that, you know, with him, it, it, it's, it's all very immediate, right? The, uh, the, whatever the, whatever the issue of the day is, if he's, if people are expressing fealty to him at that point, um, they're his allies in that fight. Um, and it seems to change very, very rapidly between the two. Um, now, Absolutely. But just let me, Aiden, let me just add one sure. more, one thing about uh, the reporting and playbook today. It does point to, I feel like deja vu all over again with the conversation around McCarthy and you're, you're starting to see sort of uh, some of what eventually destroyed Boehner already merging with McCarthy and he's not even the speaker yet, right? And so I think he's, you know, as Rachel and Tara pointed out today, he's already got this faction of ideological conservatives who, you know, don't really trust him because he's kind of this, you know, backslapping California politician who's known for being a true conservative. And he's always going to have trouble on the Trump front because he's kind of gone back in terms of his, his loyalty to Trump. So if, he, if the Republicans do take the House and he becomes a speaker, it's going to be pretty fascinating to see if he can manage a slim majority any better than Boehner did in those years when you know, people, conservatives just tortured Boehner. 
And I imagine the question for uh, Republican leaders in the, the House and the Senate now is how to move forward and perhaps make Trump's control over the party a little bit less potent. Depends on which yeah. Republican leader <laughs> you are. Yeah. No, he um, raises I mean, a ton of money, like he, you know, and he helps mm -hmm. with endorsements. So he sells a lot of political power. He sells like a huge base. The Republicans, seventy percent of Republicans, would want him to run again. I think. Yeah, I mean, like, look, I think um, McCarthy sees him as like he's going to help them get back to the majority. Um, but if you look at McConnell on the other side, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, you know, he still is not talking to Trump, not talking about Trump, doesn't want anything to do with Trump. And he's got a different, a little bit of a different calculation. Um, he wants to take back the Senate. And I kind of wonder, you know, if that's where we're going to see, you know, the potential backlash to the party choosing to be the party of Trump versus like, you know, this big tent that can accept both pro and anti-Trump Republicans, because, you know, Republicans, they're going to try to flip back the Senate. And in order to do that, they're going to have to win these sort of purpley states um, and that's going to require having candidates that are able to win and reach swing voters. Um, and if Trump is going into these states, say like Missouri, and picking someone like Eric Greitens, um, who has a, a history of sexual assault against, um, you know, a woman who's come out publicly, um, but he's now, you know, working with Trump's crew to sort of win that primary. If he wins you know, this guy's going to have a really hard time winning the state. And so this could be a problem for McConnell. It's sort of the opposite end of things. Um, you know, and this, I think, is where we could actually see, you know, this decision to stick with Trump really blow back on Republicans. Um, does it hurt them in the Senate as they try to um, regain the majority there? Well, that's right. Rachel, that's so right. The thing that you know, during all during the Trump years, you just kept hearing people say, you know, just humor him, take him seriously, but not literally and all of these things. And before they knew it, he was the nominee of their party and then he was <laughs> the president, right? And so there's this aspect to Trump that they, that Republicans still haven't seemed to learn the lesson of is that, no, he means exactly what he's saying. And when he says he's not going anywhere, he means it. And I think there is this idea, um, like you're saying with McCarthy, you know, he gets the speakership and now he's in charge. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's not <laughs> how it's gonna go because by that time we're getting close to 2024 and everyone's gonna be wondering if Trump's gonna run and how supportive he, how supportive McCarthy's gonna be of a second Trump presidency, right? So it's like, he's not going anywhere and the power that he wields over the party, like this would be the time to stop it, right? Like by the time you're in the majority, it's too late. Watch Trump a lot of secret Donald Trump someday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> This Trump guy says too many crazy things. He'll never survive politically. <laughs> do I mean we do? I do get the sense now, though, that even you know when when Republicans are asked, when Mitch McConnell I think was asked on Fox News a couple of weeks ago if uh, if he would support Trump as the nominee, and he just said he would support the nominee no matter what. So I think even someone like Mitch McConnell, who's a little bit uh, you know who's who, who doesn't really want to talk about Trump anymore and has sort of tried to distance himself from Trump. Uh, in the in recent months, it will still be stuck with Trump as nominee should Trump decide to run. Um, is that you know? Do most Republicans are they are they sort of stealing themselves for the prospect that Trump runs and I guess reigns on sort of a potential DeSantis parade in in twenty twenty four? 
I think they're just hoping he doesn't. <laughs> I think at this point, I think at this point they're hoping that it's all talk. Yeah. Um, because you know, there's obvious reasons why he wouldn't run, right? He there were parts of the job that Donald Trump liked, but he didn't like the work part of it. He doesn't like to to govern and to legislate, right? Um, and so I think they're hoping that he doesn't run. Um, but at the same time, what's what I think what would be really fascinating, let's say Donald Trump does run. How does anyone else run when for the last four years, and then by that point, last six and a half years, um, you had to prove to be completely loyal to him. He was never wrong. How do you get on stage and debate him? What's the debate about? There's no debate if you agree with every, everything the person says. And so- He just wins the nomination because right? there's no one else. <laughs> exactly. Coronation. That's, it. That's it. It's literally a coronation. Something that like, we talked about that during 2016 with Democrats about how the Hillary Clinton nomination was a coronation. No, this would be a real coronation <laughs> where if anyone was on stage, it'd be like a joke, like an actual joke and no real competition. And so to, I think this, the Republican Party has had chances over and over and over to kind of decide, okay, we're not going to be as Trumpy. We're going to kind of try to push Trumpism and Trump out of the way. And they've yet to figure out how to do that while still keeping um, the support of his base. Because the other question is, where would his, I mean, my question has always been, where would his base go? So you, you get upset about Trump and you say, no, this is the party of, this is our big 10 of people who are anti-Trump and love Trump. Where are the, where are the, anti, where are the Trump people gonna go? They're not gonna start voting for Democrats, right? And so I think that part of it has always been really fascinating to me is that they're so nervous about them going somewhere, maybe not voting again, um, that they're willing to kind of put up with abuse for, for years from, from Donald Trump. I also Trump. think like you going up against Trump, like if you rarely come out unscathed, right? right. Like so many of his <laughs> monikers have really stuck with his uh, primary uh, candidate challengers, like Lion Ted Cruz, little Marco. Like it's kind of hard. I can't imagine Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio ever being able to really mount a presidential campaign after the way that Trump destroyed them. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know. I think he's Even like- even someone like Ron DeSantis, who is like beloved by Republicans right now, I can't imagine him escaping unscathed from a debate stage with Donald Trump. <laughs> well, what would he say about Ron? Because Ron and he and Ron are so similar. Like I'm trying to almost think of like the the moniker before it comes out, like Odd Ron or something. <laughs> like because he's apparently like kind of doesn't have any personal skills. Um, well, they don't always make the. They, they don't or always little Ron. Ron what about little, cupcake right? Ron? Since that's how they get yes. him to go to meetings, Tara. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cupcake Ron would work. Oh my God! Yes, I, I, this, I, I spoke to a staffer last night who works for Ron DeSantis. She's like, I came up with luring into meetings with cupcakes. <laughs> wow. I wish somebody would lure me to meetings with cupcakes. I know. I, know. I was I just gonna that. say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna it's start like resisting meetings. Yeah. 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 And just one point on like his power in the primary. This surprised me. Nikki Haley said she run Trump runs, which I thought like, wow, she's already you know rolling it out. Yeah, you know, if 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 he jumps in the race, she doesn't know what's going to happen to him over the next few few years, right? But that to me just suggested that someone who you know has a pretty good political team around her decided that was the right uh, the, the right move, and that like if he doesn't run, he'll remember. That you know, he was sort of that she was and loyal to poor him. Pence that, I, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do we have any I sense I don't know. of Mike Pence's no future uh, political career at this point? 
<laughs> I mean, he's trying. Like he's he has a team around him. He has real people working for him, and I think they think because of his name recognition, doesn't he pull like pretty? He pulled ahead of the other mm. Republican challengers um, in a primary, but not as high as Trump. And like he still has that association with Trump, but Trump could like destroy him pretty easily. I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's like his 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 affiliation with Trump helps him, but also he's you know. It's just like, I'm sure a statement like Trump could really knock him out of the field. For sure. Right. And look, Trump's head is all about January 6th and the election mm-hmm. and election fraud bullshit. And his entire view of Pence has now been reduced to, you know, <laughs> you didn't like, you know, overthrow the Constitution and in- <laughs> install install me for a second term. And that's that's all he cares about and i think there's been a good amount of reporting that when pence's names come when pence's name comes up around he he doesn't exactly belay him but that's his big that's you know with trump everything is like just one thing you know you you, you name someone and there's just like one thing that like one bulb that goes on in his head and that's what he remembers about that person (laughs) and that can change over time the bulbs can like switch but for pence right now it's just January 6th didn't overthrow the election. You know, it's not well, like- Well, it's still the same way with McCarthy. It's the same thing exactly. with McCarthy. He's still not over McCarthy turning on him. And so like, you know, even there was some reporting in the Washington Post that, you know, people are talking to Trump telling him don't support McCarthy for the speakership. And he has a lot of people around him who are not fans of McCarthy either. And he tends to listen to them. Um, he, you know, he still thinks of him as like an establishment player. And I don't know, it's, mm. it's all about, it's all about January 6th. January 6th lives on for the next four to 12 years. I don't know. The one that just, Aiden, just one thing to go back to your McConnell uh, quote. I yeah. thought that was one of the most interesting moments for McConnell this year because, mm. you know, McConnell doesn't do much without really thinking it through. He doesn't do these set piece interviews without having a, a, a very intentional strategy. And that day, if you watched the interview, it was all about putting Trump in the rearview mirror and trying to unite around opposition to the Biden agenda, which is like where he's trying to move things. And, and he got snagged at the end of that interview with the, yeah, of course, I'll support the Republican nominee, even if it's Trump in 2024. And that's the only thing that anyone really picked up from that interview, even though the entire rest of it was him not wanting to talk about Trump, Trump who, you know, it's all about Biden, 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 and we're uniting around this big government agenda. And then boom, at the very end, he let slip that, yeah, of course, he'll support the Republican nominee and that defined the interview. And so you got, imagine McConnell watching what's going on with, with uh, Liz Cheney right now and thinking like, holy shit, if I, you know, that, that could be a scenario where that's me, you know, that, that down the road. I've always wondered if there's going to come a day where he um, or other Republicans who very clearly are done with Trump um, are re- going to regret sort of, you know, what happened uh, during the, the the second impeachment. I mean, there was never really there was never really a thought that potentially we could see, you know, McConnell join with 20 Senate Republicans and vote to impeach him. And you know, bar him from running for office. There was maybe um, an hour on January. Maybe, 6th. yeah. I mean, that, maybe like... for maybe for a couple of days, we really yeah. saw the break, you know, in the party with Trump. And then, as soon as people started talking about impeachment, as soon as Trump got banned from Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, people, the, the base and Republicans started rallying around him again. And 
there was that moment though where people were Senate Republicans were generally just disgusted with him. And, you know, they ultimately took this sort of off ramp saying that you can't impeach a former president, right? That it doesn't allow for that in the constitution. But you gotta wonder, you know, if, if Trump ends up being as strong uh, as he is right now for the next few years and really dominating the party, are people going to regret that vote uh, and not taking that chance to step out and say, no more Trump, we're barring him from office. Wasn't right. that insane how quickly they kind of turned back to him? Like, I like I remember just like, oh, they're they're really done with him. And the idea mm-hmm. and the flipping back to him and, and was, it happened so quick and all at the same time, it makes you wonder like what happened behind, you know, behind the scenes. Some reporters should really look into that. Um, but there is this, like, I was just, I never understood, and I still don't. Um, and I wonder what the, sorry, Aiden, I'm not trying to take over your podcast. But Please do, what, yeah, what, take the helm. What you guys think, like, what was it about? Because it, it, he, the move happened so quick, like Rachel, you said it was like two days of everyone being so upset with Donald Trump. Do we think it was like that, they felt like Democrats were starting to overreach? I mean, it's well, a good question. I mean, like yeah. clearly people were hearing, people were hearing from their constituents, right? Yeah, right, um, right? And like Trump had been spouting conspiracy theories about the election for so long by that point, and none of them were standing up to him on, on that, that by the time he, it, that he actually did cross a line for the party, for some party leaders, you Do know, the base isn't going to listen to them because they've always been listening to Trump and they, <laughs> you know, the leaders have never given, other Republican leaders have never given the base you know, an alternative, right? They've sort of muffled any criticism of the president or any disagreements, they've kept them private. And so consequently, the base has always been with Trump. And like, he just, you know, they, and a lot of Republicans, I think we saw in polls, like right after the sixth, didn't have a problem with what happened in the Capitol, which, um, you know, just says something about where the party is. I have to, I Sorry. also have to think that conservative media plays a role in this. And right. it's might just be my like very myopic view because uh, I'm the editor of Mediate, but there, you know, th- this pattern wasn't new. There was, you know, for, for years, Trump had done some, you know, had some big controversy and then there would be sort of the first member of conservative media to defend him for it. Um, after, you know, when, when every politician was sort of condemning him and with like January 6th, I, I, I think I remember the, the, the federalist, uh, published some story about how it was, you know, there were secret anti-Trump protesters that had infiltrated the mob on the Capitol. And that sort of spreads through conservative media, gets on Fox News, and and eventually it's, it's you know, the I think the base follows. Um, I'm not sure, you know, who's leading who there, um, mm-hmm. but I do think conservative media probably plays a big role in rehabilitating Trump quite quickly um, after he's done something that everyone else would normally condemn. Right. <clears throat> Uh, I do want to speak about the Biden administration and new playbook. Um, the four of you guys took over uh, playbook uh, the day before Joe Biden was sworn in as president, I believe, if I have that correct. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, almost everything has changed between the Trump administration and this new one, um, which uh, has been described as considerably more normal than the Trump administration. Uh, has that return to normalcy been refreshing for you guys covering the administration? Ryan, you're the uh, oldest. I <laughs> <laughs> Most experienced. Yeah, I mean, when I was covering the the, uh, the Roosevelt administration, <laughs> I, I you know, um, yeah, I think it had. I, I think 
said this before, that, like there's some muscles that got um, atrophied during the Trump years, perhaps, you know, um, covering policy and some legislative uh, maneuvering because, you know, Trump didn't pass a whole lot of legislation after the tax cut and his White House uh, was not known for being like a, you know, a haven for policy wonks. And, you know, this administration is throwing out an enormous amount of pretty complicated uh, policy. But these three plans, you know, the rescue plan, the jobs plan, the families plan, you know, there's a ton of really complicated, nitty gritty uh, policy from climate change to child care to the caregiving stuff to, you know, nuances of child tax credit and um, COVID relief plan, you know, a lot of stuff, right? Um, so I think that's been the biggest change is like remembering that it's not all about uh, White House palace intrigue, although we still cover that because it's important to know who, who these people are and who has the president's ear. Mm. Um, but there's a, a whole set of muscles that got uh, <laughs> not not used so much in in the in the Trump era. Mm. Yeah, it was all about drama, but drama is you know obviously an easier read um, <laughs> policy. Mm requires a lot more homework to cover right? <laughs> yeah. oh, it shit. does yeah it's like oh god do wind turbines really work I mean, oh like, <laughs> you know there's uh, also the there's also this notion we've talked about this before as a team like you know republicans uh, in the trump white house leaking all the time um yeah. and democrats just don't do that at least not yet um you know, I've covered Nancy Pelosi for a while and it always, it's just always so striking to see how her members are very much fall in line and they're sort of afraid to speak out against her. And I think that Democrats in general, they're just, that right now they're very united and they, um, they're loath to cross each other. They're loath to criticize each other. And so sometimes, you know, that's can be harder as a reporter to get information when you know Republicans were in power, they weren't afraid to sort of leak things, and <laughs> so it's a um, it's not only different muscles, but um, you know, just in terms of getting people to tell you things that you know would get them fired or that they're not supposed to tell you. Democrats are much yeah. more um, in sync with each other, and they just they don't do it as much as Republicans do. So it's, it's also it's just like ha happy people don't leak as much, mm. you know, <laughs> right? And like the the I bar memoirs. for like what? What's a scoop in this White House versus the Trump White House is so <laughs> oh hilariously God. different. Right. Like in this White House, like I, I'm trying to think of like some of the big scoops of the year. Like I thought that was a pretty good scoop uh, that Tyler Pager had uh, for Politico, where where Brian Deese took a female economist's name off of a memo to the president. His <laughs> name on it. That's like, you know, and just thinking back, like, and then, you know, some personnel scoops, like, oh, my God, you know, Biden's nominating this person to run this agency. Right. They're really, they're really interesting because their views on X. Like, in the Trump White House, John Kelly, the chief of staff, got in a fist fight with Corey Lewandowski. In <laughs> you know? Like, he grabbed yeah. him by the collar and, like, threw him against a wall. And, like, good for John Kelly because Corey Lewandowski sucks. But, like... <laughs> 
but like it's just you cannot compare the two it's not useful to compare the two administrations like the, the point of comparison has to be like the obama administration and what came yeah. before like, it's like remind yourself what an outlier the trump administration was yeah it's like covering like a bravo show versus a pbs show you know what i mean right. Like yeah. so, we're we're back to PBS, and but, we're just, yes. although they have some good drama on PBS, like <laughs> they do. I mean, yeah. Downton Abbey. I think the thing <laughs> also is like after four years of Trump, Democrats realized that the infighting doesn't work for them, right? Because yeah. you know they do have, and what's 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 really interesting is that you would expect more infighting from a party that is so diverse, right? Because there are so many different groups. Um, who over the over the Trump years gained so much more power and influence over the party, right? You're looking at right. climate change groups, anti-racism groups. You're looking at, um, you know, groups about um, Native Americans, like all of these different groups that gained so much, obviously women's groups that gained so much power and influence and um, lobbying ability and they professionalized in a different way. You would expect that more from Democrats, but I think that what they're, what I keep hearing from them is like, oh no, we know we need each other. And that, <laughs> and that you know, what helps the women's group helps the anti-racism group and what helps the, you know, the LGBTQ plus group helps this group. And I think that part of it is really, fascinating in a way that it's hard to report out, right? Like it's, it's kind of hard to be like, well, everyone likes each other because that's not super interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think they they are also always thinking about how to make sure the Democratic Party looks nothing like the four years of the Trump administration, right? And I think, mm -hmm. so this idea of backbiting and stabbing each other in the backs and all of that one, we're still, what is it, May? It's We're in May, so it's possible that that may happen later as things start to get a little tougher. But it's, I think, one of the most interesting things that has happened with this Biden White House is that progressives have been very happy with him up until this point, right? And I think there was this idea that he would come in and be this moderate, even though, you know, the the platform he ran on was pretty progressive. I think people were expecting him to hold bipartisanship above all else. And that's not what's happened. And I think that aspect of it has been fascinating because Ron Klain, the chief of staff, has really worked to kind of keep the progressives happy in different ways. Like they talk to them a lot and meet with them a lot and all of these things in, the, in this White House. And so I, they knew that they needed to take them more seriously than the Obama White House did. Um, and I mm. talked to a source recently yeah. at the White House and they were saying, you know, we, we didn't think progressives were that serious back in 2008 2000, or 2009 on. They were like not paying a lot of attention to them. And so now they've had to, you know, the people who would make the most stink are progressives. And what they've done is <clears throat> be able to keep progressives happy by kind of doing what they want or at least appeasing them in different ways. And I think that part of it, um, is you know was politically smart for them because that that does give the sense that yo everyone's happy everyone's so excited about this. <laughs> I will say it's never ever true. Right. And, <laughs> like it's never true, and any group of people at that level are always there are always internal dynamics that are really tough to report out, especially in the beginning when it's a tight ship. But it's never ever true. Every you know every think about any workplace you've ever been in and think about the no one's happy <laughs> right there's always always intrigue and uh, not at political there's no intrigue <laughs> <laughs> power dynamics 
And so I, I, it's always bullshit that like, you know, there, there aren't splits between Steve Rochetti and Ron Klain and the rest. We just haven't been able to, to get them. And the, the, my great example of this is 2001 when it was a cliche of journalism about the Bush White House and how everyone got along and how tight they were. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, Karen Hughes like left the White House and it turns out that Karen and Carl Rove each other's throats and Andy Card was like trying to, you know, referee this titanic struggle inside and no reporter had an inkling of what was going on and everyone was shocked the day karen hughes like left um anyway it's there's always so basically uh, you're always saying drama. we suck ryan that we, need to, that we <laughs> well, should be pushing harder um we have heard a little bit out of we haven't we have heard a little bit out of the moderates complaining that ron Klain is giving too much love to the progressives right mm. like you know, there is some of that. And well, heard- I mean, specifically, like in the West Wing, no, like, you know, no. at the I senior heard- levels of the White yeah. House. Well, I imagine, I imagine it's harder now to find out, like, to, to get scoops from sort of inside the White House and elsewhere in Washington D.C. just because of the pandemic, right? Everyone's yeah. reporting yeah. from home. It's there's like just just a lot less drama going on. Um, you can't, that is a great talk. point. You can't get into the White House as easily as you used to, right? Like, uh-huh. I have, I'm a. Uh, card carrying member of the WHCA. I have a card pass, <laughs> but like I can only go in on. We, there's a lottery system, and you have to, you know, be you have to be cho- you have to be you know randomly chosen on weeks, or you have to be someone who's in the pool, or you have to be someone who um, has a, has a meeting, and maybe the White House puts you on the list. So there's all these different ways that we're being kind of blocked right now from <laughs> from being able to go into the White House and get at exactly what Ryan's talking about. And I think, you know, where I think I would I would venture I want, I want to go on a limb here and say probably most of the people in the White House press corps vaccinated, if not you know the vast majority. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it looks like there's going to be some changes, right? That they're going to have to things are going to open up a little bit. And will this White House be able to keep? all the little secrets to themselves when we're able to just pop by and go say hi to whomever. Um, <laughs> the honeymoon is over. For the the honeymoon is over, <laughs> I think. And I think that, you know, I think they know that. And I, I mean, if I, I, you know, putting myself in their shoes, I wouldn't want these nosy ass reporters up in my <laughs> business either, right? <laughs> like at all. And, and I think there is a sense from Democrats that we are looking for drama. Because in 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 a way that in, for them they they think it's negative, but what we're trying to get at is like what is actually happening, and I think yeah. that part of it um, is something that is going to have to happen as they open up because they, there's only so much longer that they can say you know only 14 people are allowed in um, the briefing room when everyone's vaccinated or yeah. or like we've reached herd immunity or whatever the the metric they use is, um, and so it'd be interesting to see what that looks like because I have a feeling things are gonna look different and maybe be a little bit more yeah. dramatic. And just to be clear, yeah. Just to be clear about like drama, I mean it's often used as this like, oh White House reporters are always looking for drama. Yeah. Drama when it comes to White House reporting is about policy and ideology right. almost <laughs> always. Right. When moderate when, right. when there's a story that like moderates are pissed. It's about they're power. Pissed because, yeah. Well it's about power and it's about policy, right? Why are moderates pissed about the uh, the, the jobs salt. plan because they want to restore salt. Like it's this right. yeah. specific meaty <laughs> policy issue. Why yeah. are why do they ever get pissed at Biden? Because he's, you know his climate change plan isn't ambitious enough, or or something yeah. like that. And that is almost yeah, it's, it's a little bit pet peeve of mine because it's very easy for administration officials or activists to be you know to whine about all these palace intrigue stories mm. and and you know the opposite of palace intrigue stories, which is really just like 
reporting on important policy debates about the future of the country is just taking the unified, you know, press release, the press releases of, of the White House. Yeah. They love, they love palace intrigue during the Trump years. <laughs> no, yeah, but here's the other thing too, is like, there's not a lot of communicating with the, it's like a black, everyone's in the black box, the White House. Like there isn't also a lot of communicating with the outside community. Mm. Like there aren't, parties that they're inviting donors to who are getting like little chits or mm. you know they're not having like business roundtable events or small business you know what I'm saying like the door isn't I mean I guess they did release some lobbyist visitors uh some uh visitor sheet uh release yeah, sorry visitor logs but you know it's just not like an open door the way it usually is I think um there aren't even like they're not even doing tours and you know, that, so. it's also I imagine that's that's uh, frustrating for the even not just the White House, the rest of D.C. as well. The, yeah. You know, I, I can imagine you guys are looking forward to, you know, this summer when, um, you know, D.C. is relatively more open from coronavirus restrictions. Um, the city's probably going to come back to life a little bit. Are you guys looking forward to that? Is that going to like help with your reporting? You're going to be able to do, you know, dinners, drinks with uh, sources and stuff like that. I prefer yeah, my couch, I, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> couch well, having a ready excuse to say no to everything. I'm sorry, it's the I, pandemic. I can't leave. <laughs> That's exactly. it, it, it. It sounds, it, now that I'm vaccinated, it doesn't work as well. And I've been, yeah. I talked about being vaccinated. People are like, oh, but you're vaccinated, right? Let's get a drink. I'm like, oh, shit, right. Okay. It's J and J or something. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It was <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with J and J. Nothing wrong with J. Uh, we sure that. <laughs> I, was I am was still one hundred percent fine. No, I think that part of it I'm really looking forward to. Right, like I, you know, covering this is my first White House, um, and this is all of our first times covering playbook. And so there's aspects of both of those jobs for me, and I think all of us that are about like what is the what is the town talking about and doing and saying because who's having dinner with who or having drinks with who and audit tells you not just like oh those people were thirsty it tells you that um, <laughs> those people that those people are like interacting and that may mean something for the policy or it may mean something for the dynamics in this in in this town that we're supposed to cover as part of playbook and i think that part of it you like you can't really do from our couch like we get a lot of virtual spot it's like oh my god look at all these fun people on a zoom which is great keep sending them y'all but you know it's not as fun it's not no. as fun as like, seeing a picture of someone um you know at a party getting drunk in the corner you yeah. know yelling about their boss like that part is tells you a lot more about this town than you know virtual zoom does yeah and i i mean i would say that what for me personally one of the reasons i took this job and was so excited about it was because um, this aspect of sort of growing a source base and meeting more people who are super influential in this town. I mean, I, I've been a longtime Hill reporter, know the Hill pretty well. It will still continue to, you know, source up and meet folks. But like now with things reopening, I'm really looking forward to sort of expanding that, learning more about uh, and meeting with people, you know, um, who are advising the White House or right. who are doing more the political sector or, you know, even the lobbying pay straight. Um, you know, that's the great thing about this job and what Playbook is, is it can sort of be whatever you want it to be, wherever the conversation is in Washington. And so, you know, the town reopening really gives us an opportunity to sort of expand that ne network we currently have 
to get even more buzz. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I also am excited to get out of my sweatpants, frankly, and start putting on <laughs> makeup again. I mean, I'm a girly girl. I like to pick out my outfit. Me so, too, um... Rachel. I'm awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm what excited. Rachel is saying is she wants to start using her expense account to buy drinks. <laughs> yes, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Playbook is read by everyone you know, in New York and Washington, D.C. In the world. In the world. Aiden, come on. (laughs) I'm doing my best here, (laughs) uh, prepping this question. So, um, but, you know, I feel like Politico and Playbook specifically occupies a space in media um, that likes to treat both sides of the aisle evenly. And that way of doing journalism in an objective, strictly objective, sort of just the facts manner went out of fashion a little bit in the Trump years when there was this growing expectation that the media should take more of a moral stance on issues. And I think that pressure was ramped up after the Capitol attack when- uh, We have no morals, but that's the answer, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was this, there's, there's, I mean, it's especially true after January, there's this pressure to cover, on the media to cover Republicans as sort of toxic, anti-democratic. And, but you guys are writing a newsletter for for a two-party town. Uh, How do you all reckon with that? And do you think that that's a fair pressure or, or, or what, or have I identified it correctly? I, uh, I, go ahead, Ryan, you wanna go? No, no, go, you go, you start. I was just gonna say like, we cover power and mm-hmm. um, like that's what Politico focuses on. That's what Playbook focuses on. Um, and you know, you might, we, <laughs> how many emails do we get a week guys uh, from people oh saying stop top, talking about Donald Trump. Well, guess what? We're not going to because he's extremely powerful. Uh, they're ousting Liz Cheney because of him this week. Um, it, it might be a political reality you disagree with, but we're going to be writing about it anyway. And I would just say like, you know, good and effective journalism means you're going to piss off the right sometimes. It means you're going to piss off the left sometimes. I mean, depending on the day, sometimes we're hearing from conservatives who are angry about something we wrote about Ron DeSantis. Sometimes it's, you know, progressives who are freaking about, freaking out about like some scoop we have about McConnell going after the Biden administration on the, you know, the 1619 project. Um, But like, look, this is our job. And I think um, the fact that we sort of hear griping from both the left and the right, sometimes it's the White House, sometimes it's the leadership on the Hill, says that you know we're doing our jobs right and i sort of i take it as a metric of success um that we're driving the conversation so but yeah and aiden i wouldn't sorry oh, is that a train, a train horn? that's a train <laughs> horn because i'm sitting outside the cafe in des moines um what? actually we don't even know where our colleague is by the way aiden, put that on the record okay <laughs> All right, <I'm> <laughs> um sorry but it's a really loud train um i wouldn't mistake aiden sorry i wouldn't mistake yeah not having a sort of censorious lecturing tone mm. about Trump's lies or the January 6th insurrection or the misinformation that spread about the election. I wouldn't mistake that for, um, you know, uh, the absence of, of, of constantly lecturing our readers about how bankrupt that the misinformation that's spreading out there, our readers know all that shit. You know what I mean? And um, they're not looking to—they're uh, not looking to read playbook every day for um, further, you know, resistance uh, lecturing about what a liar Donald Trump is. Like 
that's embedded in the in the in the reporting, right? Um, and so I wouldn't mistake, you know, so I I disagree a little bit with the premise of the question that mm. we're somehow reporting on Washington and power in a way that uh, doesn't take into account um, the moral questions that you're you're sort of you're hinting at. You know, read it closely, and that's that that's all in there. We never. Um, we never uh, flinch from talking about talking about those things in a very plain manner. We're very well aware of the traps of extreme all sizeism and all the important things that you know, journalists uh, discuss on, on uh, panels at Columbia University. And but that <laughs> you know, and I, you know, take all that stuff like really seriously. But that doesn't mean you don't. I think a lot of left-wing journalists these days think that just covering Trump or covering uh, what he's thinking and how he's influencing the party is somehow inherently being, problematic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better. And yeah. I, mean, I think that I think the thing is is and when we took this job we knew that because we talked about it like when we first started meeting on Zoom is this idea we were always asked like how do you how do you handle Trump and it said we handle Trump based on how the Republican Party handles Trump right we will we will talk about him as much as as they are and how much influence he has on this party and I don't think none the thing that's always funny when people say that like you guys are concentrated too much on both sides because you're definitely not the first person to say that if you check my mentions on twitter um so, <laughs> <laughs> i told you to delete tweets on twitter <laughs> but, but the thing that but the the funny thing is like we are constantly calling it the big lie. We are constantly calling the insurrectionists bad people who did a bad thing, right? So I'm not sure. Sometimes it's, I'm not. It's not super clear what people want, other than for us to ignore these parts of politics. And I think we can't. You know what I mean? Like the insurrection started. The people who did the insurrection said they were doing it because Donald Trump told them to, right? And so if we're going to have a conversation about politics, politics post-January 6th is completely different than it was beforehand. And so that that we have to cover how what that looks like. And I think the thing is, like, there are obvious things that we are just not going to um, do. And one of those things is, like, pretend as if the Republican Party and the, like, we're not gonna, you know, always say every time something we're reporting something on the Democratic Party say, but don't forget the Republican Party have that insurrection, right? So it's like you that doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's not how journalism works. You know, when you're reporting on one thing, that's the thing that you're concentrating on. I think if people look at if if they're reading playbook as much as they pretend they are and say they are, um, they would know that that's not how we operate. We have we have pissed off everybody, and sometimes everybody on the same exact day. Including each other. Including each other. Which is and like, and, and just one other thing, like the newsletter's three to four thousand words a day. Like, mm -hmm. I don't agree with every word in it every day. <laughs> you don't, <laughs> Ryan? What? Is that a jab I am. No, I'm just saying, like, there's always going to be something to piss off, like Rick Grinnell or one of the Pod Bros on a daily basis. <laughs> oh, yeah. and like Pod Bros. That, that's you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's not really the that, that's not really the author. You know, like they're mm -hmm. they're doing. You know, the, the the social media conversation is very much about um, activism and uh, you know uh, virtue signaling and you know 
clicks and faves and retweets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, our audience is, uh, is, is, is a little different. Right. Our audience is very clear with us. And they're also more, sophisticated. They I mean, is it, is it fair to say they're a little bit more sophisticated in the game? Like we don't have to put, use like a, even titles for people. Like we don't have to be like, you know, Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, like everyone, we can basically just call him Mitch. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a different level of intimacy with our readers where we assume that they have a base level of knowledge and or don't need to be preached to while they're reading playbook before they had coffee at 6.30 in the morning. You know what I mean? Is it safe to say that you guys mostly tune out Twitter? No, no, no Aiden, no. it's not safe to say that. I do. I do. <laughs> oh, sorry. Eugene's still, new, Eugene's still new enough to care. But I, I Look, <laughs> Aiden, I when I that. tell you, I have, yeah. like, get, the, one of the <laughs> things about this new gig has been, like, the world of Twitter. Like, I've never had so many people hate me and love me. But that's because time. you matter now. Because that's like, oh, Tara, thank you. It's um, <laughs> true. Like, nobody hates on people who don't matter. Ask and, Trump. And, and I, I don't always... <laughs> right. I don't, like, for me, I don't mind... I don't, I'm not one of those reporters who minds criticism of my work or like things that I've written or said. Um, I do. If someone, if someone <laughs> has like a, a, if they're coming at it with like a real gripe, right? Like, oh, this was wrong. And, but like, you know, calling me the N word or saying like, you're a dumb bitch. Like that is not super helpful. That doesn't help no. me understand anything. Like what is your actual gripe? And I think that is where, and th- these three have been really great about like, reminding me that Twitter is not the real world. Because I think when you're, you know, when it's one of those really bad days, you can kind of get sucked into it mm-hmm. um, in a way. And so the, the what I've been trying to do is like focus on the work. And I think the Twitter conversation is always going to be gross and disgusting, no matter what day of the week it is, no matter what you said, like someone's gonna be pissed. Um, and we can't let that influence the way that we cover things we can't let that because then you're not reporting if you're just always scared that someone's going to be mad i'm not gonna lie there's been reports where i'm like guys do you think we should put that because like they might be mad at us now um and you know these three have been like hell no no we don't care about that that, you know so that has been for me such a it's been such a good learning experience right in in that the the and a reminder that you know because I started you know we all started journalism before Twitter and journalism will continue after Twitter so you can't mm-hmm. allow this social media cesspool of gross um, that people are operating not in good faith retweet you know saying stuff just so you know strangers will retweet them mm-hmm. um, and not being you know just being and you know mean for no reason like you can't allow that to change the way that you operate and and report. Um, because we also get feedback in email form and other ways that are usually a little bit more nuanced um, about the things that we say. And I think those are the things that I take um, more seriously. I'm starting to take more seriously. Yeah, look, people, people care passionately about You can't write about politics in 2021 if you have a thin skin, because you're always going to piss someone, someone off. Right. Right? Joe Biden is intensely hated by the right. Donald Trump is even much more intensely hated by the left and you know, and some members of the right too. And like you're if you want to cover politics, you have to just know that it's going to be an exercise in constantly angering people for and you can't calibrate your coverage to, you know, uh, go along and get along with the loudest uh, bad faith actors on Twitter. Right. 
Right. Yeah. It's always right. shoot the messenger day and playbook. Yeah. That's why we that's why we try to use uh Ryan's byline first as much as possible. <laughs> Everyone yeah. go after Ryan. We, 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 have a, yeah. we, have a, we haven't put it in yet, but we're gonna do complaints at Ryan Lewis. <laughs> well, I feel like the, we, the people that are the do... blindly furious click on the first byline to send their angry emails. No, oh, well, no, it's actually no, Aiden. No, 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 no. no. It is funny though, we have noticed that um sometimes a critic will um, choose to target one or two or three names, but not all four. And it's always like this game of like, oh, I wonder why that person only mentioned Ryan and Tara, or why did that person only mention Eugene and Rachel today? And and it's like, you know, it's just, it's really funny that they just, uh, oh, maybe they like this one person, so they they want to go after the other three. Um, So that, that is kind of funny. It, yeah, it like we'll get an, like I'll get an email that is and it's it's like one of those it could be even a day where it's like on a weekend and I didn't like there's only one byline and they're like how dare you say that I was like well I didn't say that so <laughs> that's awkward <laughs> like no one and so it's just it is it is this um it is this and that's why playbook is so different than I think kind of anything else especially this iteration because we are so interconnected the four of us and so you have to so we're always cognizant of like each other and how that impacts the, um, the other person and like really supportive. And that part of it is like really helpful. I know I can call them on one of those or text our little group chain, which we're always texting um, about how crappy the day was. And that aspect of it, I think for me, I played football growing up. I know that's shocking to a lot of people now, um, but I did. <laughs> um, I played college football. And so like the teamwork aspect of playbook is what I think is really fascinating in it. You know, even when you are randomly picked out of the four, for some strange reason, um, for someone, you know, t- talking about race or something, I'm like, well, I didn't write that. So that's interesting <laughs> that you chose the Black dude to have that conversation with. And that part of it has been, I think, you know, it's, it is a weird playbook. That, that's a part of playbook that is, is I, you know, I think has taken some getting used to is um, this idea that everyone is paying so much attention to every single thing that you say or do. And, um, you know, I follow these. I think you have been unfairly targeted though, seriously of our group. And it's because of your, and I think it's because of race. Yeah. That like, it, it really is. I mean, and you know, that's, it, it, it's and it happens from both sides. Talk about both sidesisms. It happens from both sides. And I think that is the thing that's so confusing at times um, is, you know, uh, Tim Scott was talking about being called an Uncle Tom, like, so have I. <laughs> and it's like, I, first of all, my name is Eugene, bitch. Second, um, there's this, <laughs> first of all, and I think, you know, <clears throat> they, often people are asked to answer for uh, things that happen. And I think it's, it's, it is this unfair, strange rubric. And like I said, it's happened on with both the Republicans and Democrats and independents and libertarians and everyone um, uh, up and down and around the, the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. So everyone behaves. Yeah. Basically, it, Steve Oberman been... thinks that Ryan Liz is a raging conservative, um, <laughs> <laughs> and that he and I are in some sort of cabal to try to like bring Trump back or something. Bring him back. Um, and Matt Negrin, we're calling you out too. Have you ever even read our column before? <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, that's gonna that's gonna lead to some more tweets tomorrow. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I would just say, I mean, obviously the racist attacks aside with Eugene, um, I do think like, you know, the the fact that, you know, we get criticism 
sort of on a regular basis, I think shows that we are doing our job. And like, again, racist comments aside, um, I would take these sort of attacks as almost a badge of honor. I mean, clearly we are driving the conversation. We're not afraid to say what people are saying. I don't want to say at the water cooler because clearly nobody's all back at work (laughs) yet. But um, I mean, like not every, not every every reporter is willing to sort of, you know, say things that are going to piss off some of their sources. And I think one of the great things about, you know, Playbook 3.0 is that we, we really, we're trying to tell people what folks are saying behind the scenes. And if that that means, you know, someday we're going to piss off, you know, Pelosi, or we're going to piss off McCarthy, or we're going to piss off McConnell or someone at the White House, then so be it. I mean, we're going to say it, we're going to do our jobs. And the, the point of playbook is to sort of bring this information to light. And sometimes that means, you know, we're going to get criticism in the process. Um, sometimes it might mean, you know, we don't get a handout from, you know, right. someone in terms of a scoop. But like, frankly, like this is our job. And so when I see all this, you know, hate on Twitter, I'm like, bring it. Because guess what? Uh, we're doing some good stuff. And I'm proud of the work we're doing. I think that's a great place to end it. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me. Yeah, thank thanks you. for having us. Thanks, Ange. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with the Politico Playbook authors on Mediate.com.